right. Good morning. So good to see everybody on this, man, day of just uh, cool, dry air that we get to enjoy outside. And Wait a minute, that was months ago. No, it's hot and sticky right now, isn't it? But you know what? It's only in the, what, low to mid-90s? About a month, about mid-August, we're going to be wishing for this weather again. So enjoy it while you can, right? If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 15. As we start another chapter in our series in Romans. Last week we finished up chapter 14, which focused primarily on how to, how to love one another in spite of all the many differences that we tend to have between us. You know, when you, group, when you get a group of, of people Together, you will inevitably have some that are at opposite ends on their beliefs about certain issues. And especially when you get a group of people in a church, you're going to get some that are on opposite ends of um, what they define as right and wrong behaviors. Um, I'm not talking about behaviors that the Bible explicitly addresses as sin but behaviors that aren't clearly addressed one way or another in Scripture. And so there will be one group that feels strongly that Christians should not do this certain thing, and if they do, they are not glorifying God, and then a group on the other side that thinks that in Christ they are perfectly free to do that, and it doesn't uh, dishonor God in any way. And so what we learned last week was that the only way for these two groups of people to remain unified and walk in love with one another is by taking on the attitude of Jesus himself who laid down his life for the benefit of others. He thought of others. He thought of me and you more than he thought of himself and everything that he had a right to do or not to do. And you know, I was thinking about how this really goes completely against everything that we have been taught in our American culture. And our culture says, stand for your rights. Don't back down. Exercise your freedom. Fight for what you believe in. And that's all fine and good for things like, you know, the Bill of Rights and the freedoms that are afforded us in our Constitution. But the Bible was written long before the United States even began as an idea. The church existed long before America did. And the Bible says that in order to protect the unity of the body that Christ died for, you need to lay down your rights and prefer others over yourself and what you think you have all the rights in the world to do. It's kind of ironic if you think about it. that When it comes to our country, in order to protect our freedoms and to maintain the kind of country that our forefathers built, we have to stand strong and fight for our rights. But when it comes to the church, in order to protect the unity of the body and to have the kind of a church that Jesus' blood paid for, we have to actually lay down our rights and prefer one another. And so that's chapter 14. Today we're going to start chapter 15, and in the text we're going to look at, the first part of it is just going to reiterate some of that. And then Paul is going to get into the whole point of all of this. So let's look at it. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. 
Paul says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, I'm going to ask like I do pretty much every week that your Holy Spirit would come now and Uh, Open our eyes to see the truth that you want us to see in here. God, your ways, your truth is so beyond us, so uh, much bigger than what our human brains are capable of comprehending. And there's got to be a supernatural touch from you in order to do that. So we're asking for your grace and your mercy on us to be able to do that so that we would better see you for who you truly are. And we'd be able to live lives that reflect that and glorify you. For it's your honor and your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, those first three verses of chapter 15 that we just read pretty much summarizes all of chapter 14. That in order to maintain unity and be able to walk in love with one another, the, the strong need to bear the weaknesses of the weak. Don't focus just on pleasing yourself, but think of the good and the building up of others. And then in verse 3, Paul points everything back to Jesus again to show how this selfless attitude that he is encouraging us to have is just a reflection of Jesus himself. But what I really want to focus in on today, what I really felt the Holy Spirit drawn me to was was verse 4. Look at that again. He says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, what Paul is getting at here is that the whole point of laying ourselves down for others is not just so that we will have good relations with each other in the church. It's about something much more than that. There's more to it than just people with differing views coming together and getting along with one another. And he points to the scriptures first as an example of this. He says when he's referring to what was written in earlier times, he's talking about the scriptures. When he's, when he's referring to the scriptures, what exactly does he mean by that? Is he talking about all of the Bible? No, he's not. Because... The whole Bible as we know it today didn't exist when, when Paul was writing this. Paul was actually in the process of, of writing more of it. What he was referring to was the Old Testament scriptures because the Old Testament was the only form of scripture that existed at that time. And then we got to try to figure out, well, who's he talking about when he says it was written for our instruction? Well, he's talking about Christians, you and me. And most people back then, and even a lot of people still today, believe that the Old Testament was primarily written for the instructions to the Jews. But that's not the case at all. It was ultimately written for the church, 
for those who are in Christ. And then what does he say is a whole point of the Old Testament scriptures? The last part of verse 4, so that we might have hope. Now, <clears throat> I guess you could say that the purpose of it is what he says in the first part of the verse, that it was written for our instruction. But that's not the main purpose. That's a means to the main purpose. It was written for our instruction so that we would have hope. I want us to look at this word instruction here for just a minute. The word that Paul used in the Greek there is the word didaskalia. And there are other versions of the Bible that translates that Greek word there better than I believe the New American Standard Version that I'm reading here translated it. Didaskalia is used 21 times in the New Testament. And in the New American Standard Version, Romans 15.4 is the only place in all those 21 times that it translated it to instruction. In the other 20 instances, it either translated it as teaching or doctrine, which is more accurate to what didaskalia actually means. Now, it may sound like I'm splitting hairs here. You know, what's the difference? Doctrine, teaching, instruction, isn't that all kind of the same? But I believe that these words go a long ways as to how we view the scriptures themselves. To say that the scriptures were written for our instruction, I believe it kind of has a connotation that it's saying that the Old Testament scriptures were, were rules and lists and do's and don'ts. And yes, those things are definitely in there. But if that's all that you perceive the Bible to be is a bunch of instructions and do's and don'ts and lists, then you have completely missed the whole point of the scriptures. There is a whole lot more to the Bible than just step-by-step instruction on how to live a good life. Now, I mentioned before how many people will refer to the Bible as our instruction manual for life and how that is one of my just big pet peeves because it, it, it falls way short of what the Bible actually is. And so to translate didaskalia to instruction, I believe it severely limits what Paul is actually saying here. In this particular case, the King James Version and the NIV, surprisingly, actually translates it more accurately. The King James says it was written for our learning, and the NIV says that it was written to teach us. Well, to teach us what? So that we will learn what? Well, I'll tell you now, it's not to teach us just how to live a good life. It's not so that we can learn how to behave the right way. It's to teach us about Jesus. It was written so that we could learn about him. And remember, this is the Old Testament we're talking about. The Old Testament were scriptures were written to point us to Jesus so that we could learn more actually about the gospel. That's why I always say that whatever you read in the Bible, whether it's in the New Testament or the Old Testament, if if when you are reading it, you aren't learning something more about Jesus, then you're completely missing the whole point of it. You're not reading it right. Not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday in our B1 class in the Fellowship Hall, we're going to begin the section that has to do with this, where uh, we're going to come in and learn how to read all of the Bible through the lens of the gospel and how to find Jesus in anything that you read, even in those rote instructions 
that, that just seem to be so boring. Jesus can even be found in that. So even if you haven't begun coming to that class yet, I want to encourage you to be a part of that. I mean, that's how strongly I feel that we should all know how to do this, man, to be able to, to read the Bible the right way. Because when you do, it'll change your whole perception of the Bible and make reading it more exciting, which will then in turn change your whole perception of your own life. And it's going to make it more exciting as well. Okay, so th- this particular interpretation that I've just given you are verse 4 that he's saying it was written for our instruction, basically to teach us about Jesus. That only makes sense because he says that the Scriptures were ultimately written so that we would have hope. Hope isn't found in a bunch of rules to live by. Hope isn't found in an instruction manual. I've read many instruction manuals. Well, let me put that a different way. I've read parts of many instruction manuals. I don't think I've read one all the way through. Most of us, what's the only part we ever read in instruction manual? The troubleshooting, right? Only when we have a problem with whatever piece of equipment we got, then we go to our instruction manual and immediately go to troubleshooting. And so I think that's exactly the way a lot of people treat the Bible. Only when I have a crisis in my life or something's going wrong, I'm going to go to it and I'm going to troubleshoot some stuff here. But that is not what God gave us his word for. He gave us his word so that we could learn about him. We're completely missing the point if we're not reading it, looking for him and finding out more to learn about him. And so hope isn't found in an instruction manual. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ. That's where hope is found. But what does this hope have to do with the Old Testament? And what does it mean in the context of chapter 14, which is uh, what Paul is referring back to here? Well, the word hope is a word that I think that we, more often than not, tend to think along the lines of uh, wishful thinking. As in, I hope I don't mess up. I hope it doesn't get too hot today. Or, I hope the preacher doesn't go too long this morning. But that's not the kind of hope that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about wishful thinking. He's really talking about something that we are expecting. A good definition of hope is right there in your notes if you're following along there. Hope, what Paul is talking about in biblical hope, is confident expectation. It's not something you are wishing for, but something that you are confidently looking forward to. I'm not wishing that the 4th of July holiday will come next week. I'm expecting it to. I'm looking forward to that. And I have absolutely no reason to believe that it's not going to come, that it's not going to happen. I am not wishing that I will go to heaven When I die, I'm expecting that because I know Jesus. I'm confidently looking forward to the day where I get to see him face to face. That is the the hope that I have. And that's the kind of hope that Paul's talking about here. And this kind of hope, this confident expectation is found all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, if you could sum up the Old Testament in one word, I think it would be hope, confident expectation. 
It was all pointing to and looking forward to Jesus. Every bit of the Old Testament was about something more than what we just read there on the surface and all those stories and things. I mean, for instance, it wasn't the story of Noah wasn't just about Noah's family being saved from the destruction of the flood in the ark. It was about something more. It was looking forward to God's family being saved from the destruction of God's wrath in Jesus. It wasn't just about the son of a shepherd who would slay a giant and become king of Israel. It was looking forward to, with great expectation, the son of a carpenter who would slay the giant of sin and become the king of all kings. All of the events and stories in the Old Testament were about the hope and the expectation of something more that was to come. And this is what Paul is referring to here when he says that the scriptures were written to teach us. They were written to teach us about the gospel. They were written to teach us that there's something more, something more than what we can only see here. And look what else he says in verse 4. He says, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In what situations would one need perseverance? Well, it's in situations where we either feel like giving up or we are just greatly discouraged. And so he's saying that in those situations, we can look to the scriptures and have hope. Well, how so? Well, from everything I just said about the Old Testament, we can look back at that now. Looking back, look back at what was written in earlier times and know that it wasn't just about the law. It wasn't just about the temple or the Hebrew people. It wasn't just about those great stories that we read there. It was about something more, something bigger. There was a whole lot more to it than what we just read there on the surface of the pages. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, you are just as much a part of God's story as any of those characters in the Old Testament were. You are just as much a part of God's story as Noah was, as Moses was, as as David was. And if there were more to their stories than just the events that happened to them themselves, then you can trust that whatever situation that you are in, there is more to that than than what you can just see. There is more of that that God is using in the telling of his big story. This goes back to what I mentioned a couple weeks ago. And most of the time, God only allows us to see one little pixel that makes up this beautiful picture that he has put together. And even though we can see just that one pixel, it may be pretty ugly looking to us. The color there is not beautiful at all. It may even be distorted and not real clear because we are so up close to it and focused in on that one pixel. But it is needed in order to make the big picture more beautiful. Without that one picture, the pixel, then the big picture wouldn't be near as beautiful and as glorious as it is from God's perspective. For instance, it may be losing your job 
And all you can see is the fact that you're no longer able to provide. But you trust because you've read the scriptures and you know something about God and his character and the way that he works and what it means to be in Christ. And so you trust that there's something more than what you can just see. It may be the fact that God has closed this door because he plans on opening an even better one in a little while. It may be something as simple as the fact that because of the job that you've had for so long, you've been so busy and your time's so eaten up that God's finally bringing some downtime into your life because he's got something to say to you that he wants to make sure that you hear. And he's just taking out all the noise so that he can have a captive audience for just a little while. It may be a sickness or a physical ailment in in your life or the life of a loved one. And for whatever reason, God has chosen not to heal that right now. And all you can see is the ailment and the bills and the cost of medicine and everything else. But you look at the scripture and you see God's at work here in something bigger. There's more to it than what I can only see with my eyes. It may be a difficulty in your marriage that just seems on the verge of absolute collapse. But trusting that God is actually doing something in that and there is more going on here than what you are able to see. That God has allowed things to come to this point in your marriage so that something bigger, something more important can take place. He may be using it to expose things in your heart and to bring those things to the surface so that he can change them. He may be bringing you through this difficult time so that your marriage can be even stronger on the other side of this struggle that you're going through. Or so that you will finally see that your marriage is not about the two of you getting your needs met. But it is about the glory of Christ himself being revealed through that marriage relationship. Sometimes it takes something so hard in a marriage for God to lead us through. Even a hopeless situation in a marriage. For him to turn that around and we'll finally see, man, I've made this all about me. And the whole point of it is that it's all about you. And then whatever that struggle is, it's worth it. It is worth it a hundred times over when you can come to that realization. Look at Hebrews 12, 2 up on the screen. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a weird verse. The joy set before him? Really? I mean, what was, what was set before him was an instrument of torture and death. What in the world could be joyful about suffocating to death in your own blood by hanging from nails in your hands and feet for hours and hours in the hot sun? The joy was in the hope. The hope that Jesus had that there was something more going on than just him hanging on a cross. 
there was a whole lot more to it than just the pain that he was about to go through. Namely, the redemption of mankind and the fulfillment of God's promises. And so looking at the cross, Jesus had a confident expectation that something bigger was going on than what he was just about to physically go through. Next point in your notes. God is always doing a lot more than what we can see. And if that's true, and from reading the scriptures and finding out a little bit about the nature of God, we can trust that it is, then that means that what we may see and call, well, that's the end, that's over, may not be at all. What we might define as God's punishment, he may actually define as his grace in action and interjected in your life. What we, we might see as something horrible, more than likely is leading to something incredibly beautiful. What we might assume and call a curse, God might actually be looking at and saying, no, that's a blessing. And you're going to see that eventually. This is how our God operates. There's always more than meets the eye. And sometimes we tend to think, well, if God is using this to lead to something else, and he really wants this other thing to happen, then why doesn't he just do the something else and forego all this other stuff he's taking me through in order to get there? I mean, if he's using this to work something out in my heart, If he wants my heart to change so bad and he is all sovereign, why doesn't he just change it? Why do I have to go through all this other stuff in order to make that happen? Well, here's the deal. Something that the Lord's been showing me a lot more lately. Something else that we find out about the nature of God by reading the scriptures. It's the next point in your guide. God is more about the journey than he is the actual destination. If he wasn't, then he would just skip to the chase and do those things. But he doesn't. He knows his purpose is going to be accomplished. And so until it does, he's going to take us on a journey. That's where he's going to grow us and get us to know him and see him in ways that we never have before. And I'm telling you, for those who, in Christ, who are in Christ... There is joy in the journey, no matter how rough that journey is, if we can learn to trust him in it. And then the next point, every journey he leads us on has the same ultimate destination. And Paul tells us what it is in verse 6 and 7. He says, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. He said it twice in those two verses, the glory of God. That is the ultimate destination of any journey that God takes us on. Now then, based on the point that I said right before that, am I saying that God is more about the journey than he is his own glory? No, not at all. You see, when I say he's more about the journey than the destination, I'm really talking about the secondary destination. Here's what I mean. 
God may lead you through something in order to strengthen your marriage. But a strong marriage is not the ultimate destination. Your strong marriage is secondary. And God gives you a strong marriage so that your marriage can then reflect his glory. That's the ultimate purpose. He may lead you through a situation that changes things in your heart, but your changed heart is secondary. And it has to happen in order for you to be able to live a life that fulfills the ultimate purpose. That you live a life that reflects his glory. And so in the context of Romans 14, loving one another and favoring each other over ourselves and laying ourselves down for others, it's not just about good human relations and it's not just about the unity of the body and us all getting along. Like everything else I've talked about today, it's about something more, something bigger than that. It is all ultimately about doing all this and laying ourselves down for one another in order to display the glory of God, the beauty of God, the greatness of God, the many-sided perfections of God. That's what it is all ultimately about. I mean, all of creation, all of the church and society and culture and all the things that God has allowed to transpire in the world, it all exists to display his glory. No thing and no one is an end unto itself, himself, or herself, but an end ultimately to the glory of God. Paul said earlier in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here in this church, Sunday morning worship services, Sunday school and Wednesday night classes, children's ministry, youth group, elder meetings, council meetings, uh, Twice a year business meetings, missions, small groups, all of them should exist for this one ultimate goal. To make the greatness of God big. To make much of the greatness of God that is displayed in Jesus Christ. Everything that we are about. And how I want that to be the atmosphere of this church here. And I'm telling you, we will not have succeeded as a church if all we are known by is a friendly place or if we're only known as a place that has good worship music and sometimes some good sermons preached. We will only be on our way to true success if we are known as those people that are passionate and obsessed with the glory of God. If our children speak of the glory of God, if our young people text, tweet, post, and chat about the glory of God, if we love the glory of God more than we love the glory of personal achievement, more than we love the glory of sports and the glory of financial success, that is when we will start looking more and more like a successful church. But, of course, everything in American culture threatens this radical, God-centered passion to display His glory. To display the greatness and the beauty of His worth, His immense holiness, His sovereign power, His wisdom, His goodness, His wrath, 
his mercy, his love, and his grace, almost everything in American culture threatens to do the exact opposite and make our hearts as shallow and as petty as possible. And for us to cherish our most favorite blessing of choice, fun. I'm asking you to join with me in praying that we would be so enamored with God's glory and so staggered by who he is and what he has done that we treasure the worth of Christ above all other trappings and desires of the world. That's what God wants for us. And that no matter what we are going through, our desire above all else is that we display the glory of God, that God gets glory in it. That our desire for Him to be glorified would even be greater than our desire for this struggle to end right now. That we would have the attitude, you know what, I'm not enjoying this struggle, but I'm trusting that there's more going, that is going on here than what I can see. And even though I would love nothing more than for this to end right now, what I really want more than that is for God to be glorified in it. And I would much rather this thing, this struggle that I'm going through, extend if it means that he is glorified than for this to end right now and him get no glory from it at all. Man, that's the heart I want us to have. It's the heart that we will have if we see him for who he is and understand what he has done. I'm telling you, the only thing big about this church that we should be concerned about is just how big we make God. The fruit of that will be that we become a people that are growing in our levels of trust in him. I'm telling you, when you're able to really trust God... Things like fear and anxiety just completely melt away. It is immediately replaced with just this complete sense of peace and hope. And both of those lead to the display of God's glory in your life. So church, let's not get so caught up and stressed out and fearful and anxious and divided about what we can only see with our natural eyes. But let's trust and rest in and get excited about the fact that there's something more. There is a whole lot more than what we have resigned ourselves to accept. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, that is my prayer this morning. That is the cry of my heart that we be a people that is so much more about your glory than we are about anything else. God, I know that the only way for that to happen, oh, that's not something that we can just conjure up in ourselves. And just decide, oh, I'm going to be more about God's glory today. No, that comes from a supernatural encounter with you. That comes from you opening our eyes to see you for who you really are and to move your truth from 
from just an idea that we're in agreement with in our head, God, that you move it from there into our heart where it sinks down deep and takes root and just becomes a natural outflow of our lives. And God, I pray for those in here this morning that are going through those struggles, those who haven't been able to see past the hurt and the pain and the fear that is right in front of them. God, I pray that through your word this morning, Holy Spirit, would you come and open their eyes to see that there's something else. God, I pray that you would bring them to a new level of trust in you this morning. God, that fear would just melt away. That anxiety would be gone. And that an overwhelming peace that passes all understanding would just envelop them completely. Lord, make us be a church about your glory. Not about our rights. Not about our comfort. Our success, our achievement, our wealth. Not about our numbers and how many people are coming to this church. But your glory. And how much we are making of it. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for making us a part of your story through the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that that truth right there would become real to someone for the first time in here. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and have your way in the remainder of this time. Let this time of ministry that we are about to go into, let it reflect your glory and get us moving out of ourselves. Got into what you are leading us to. So Jesus, be glorified in the remainder of our time here together. In your awesome name we pray. Amen.